Hello, this is the hardcore legend Mick Foley, and you are listening to the OVW podcast, the unofficial podcast of Ohio Valley Wrestling. Oh, I've been keeping on my eye on OVW, watched every episode of the Netflix series, and might be, just might be, heading your way to the Davis Arena. Stay tuned and have a nice day. Welcome to the OVW Podcast, the podcast about wrestling. I am Jack Noakes. I'm joined today, as always, by my co-host, Brian Hines. Hey, folks. It's good to be here. And we've got a really special guest today, probably our, our biggest guest to date, Al Snow. Yeah. Legend, legendary Al Snow, um, former owner of OVW, um, Chief Carpenter. I'm still a, you still a, I'm still a, an owner. I okay. can't get away from it that easy. <laughs> but you, you mentioned still, your booker, Chief Carpenter. Yeah, you name it. Yeah, I clean the toilets. I do everything. So <laughs> drive the truck. Set up the ring, um, yeah, the whole nine yards. Wear all the hats. Wear all the hats. Before we jump in here, let's uh, let's toast. Oh uh, yes. To to a great 2023 for Ohio Valley Wrestling and for us here at the podcast. Yes, here here. Cheers. 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 Whew. It's that Iowa shit, isn't it? That's pretty, that's good. It's good. It's but it's from Iowa. This toast is brought to you by Slipknot. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a question I like to ask all the wrestlers here on the show. A very very general question, but with you here, I think that it's uh, I think it's a necessary question. Okay. How did you end I up? I did not do it. <laughs> just so you're aware. <laughs> How did you end up at Ohio Valley Wrestling? How did I end up there? Um, I came in originally, um, beginning early 2000, uh, maybe two three. I don't know can't remember uh and uh wwe had sent me down to be the head of the developmental program mm-hmm. um and was there uh, until wwe um ended the relationship with uh ovw right. and um ended the relationship with me so i was with wwe from 95 until it was about 13 years i think all total um and then i left and uh, started a relationship with Impact Wrestling. Mm-hmm. Kind of sounds like I'm a whore. Like I just go from relationship <laughs> to relationship. But, um, and then uh, and I was a producer there, and then uh, eventually became an executive. I don't know what the ridiculous title was. They gave me something where I was over uh, talent relations and uh, television mm-hmm. uh, creative. And um, with Bruce Pritchard, we created a developmental program for. TNA or Impact, and we of course uh, did it in partnership with OVW. Right. Um, one because of the history, and two, geographically located just two hours from Nashville, so it just made sense. Makes a lot of sense. And um, um, you know, I came back uh, at that time and had another association with OVW, um, basically writing, producing, directing the TV. I did. I started doing that um, when I was. Um, head of the developmental for WWE because Cornette had um, been released um, from his uh, association with WWE while I was there. Uh, Paul, they brought Paul Heyman in, and Paul wrote TV for a while and was producing and directing it. And then they brought him back to the main uh, company because right. they had just purchased ECW. And then they brought Greg Gagne in, 
and uh, had him writing TV, and then I didn't know that. Yeah, and then kind of he just he didn't it wasn't his thing, mm-hmm. and I it kind of became where I was writing the TV through him because I was trying to help him out, and then they fired him, and I just kept writing and dir- booking and directing or whatever you want to call it these days. Sure, uh, the television and the live events, and uh, and then I did the same thing when we, with Impact, and then. When the relationship with Impact ended, as far as OVW, I left. And then uh, my relationship with Impact ended when they uh, sold the company to Anthem uh, in Canada. And um, What year was that? I have no idea. Don't know. Um, and then 2018, uh, I completely, by accident, um, bought the company. <laughs> I and the the way that happened was um at the time I was uh was getting very frustrated with the state of professional wrestling. Um when I was brought into the wrestling business, mm-hmm. uh obviously it was different. I mean, it was a very closed, very secular business. It was easier to be a made man in the mafia than it was to get in the wrestling business. And a large part of that was is because there was a uh, kind of an unspoken rule that whoever you brought in, because it was almost like an apprenticeship, mm-hmm. right. you were held responsible career-wise based off of the performance of the person you brought in. So if I were brought in by the guy that brought me in and trained me, and if I had done anything that was bad for business, well, now he gets all the heat. He yeah, it gets, on him. So now they... You know, people weren't very excited about being willing to put that their careers on the line sure. for somebody they didn't know. So if you could be able to convince somebody, you know, then you you were held accountable from there on. I mean, even to this day, I'm 60 years old and I'm still known as, with older generation, as his kid. So if I say something here today and one of the older guys hear it, they'll call him and then I'll get a phone call, and I have to have an explanation. Can I ask who that was? Uh, Jim Lancaster is was his name. Is his name, and uh, he was like a journeyman, you know, uh, wrestler. He had been uh, started in uh, you know uh, 1972 or whatever. So by the time I met him in like 1981, he had been doing it for 10 or 11 years, and I was going kind of into semi-retirement. Um, he wanted to get off the road because he had he and his wife had just had a daughter mm-hmm. and so he wanted to start his own promotion promoting um shows and uh initially when i first met him he told me you know i was trying to get get him to train me. i was 18 years old and he was like no i'm not doing that and uh and then he had booked a show and at the time um Dick the Bruiser, Dick Affleck, who was a very major, was a major star, and he owned uh, the basically the ter- Indiana, all of Indiana, and he owned part of Illinois, and he owned the Chicago office with uh, Vern Gagne. They were in, owned jointly, and his son-in-law Spike Huber was a huge, huge uh, babyface star uh, in the Midwest, mm-hmm. and so Jim had. Booked him, and then Dick, unbeknownst to Jim, had booked Spike uh, for Muchnick in St. Louis, Missouri, um, and took him out from under him, and Jim got upset and was like, well, I'm going to make sure that never happens again. And then, ta-da, I got trained. <laughs> so, 
you know, I don't know if I would be able to replace Spike Huber, but hey, at the time he thought, well, it's a good option. But that wasn't your first training, right? I, I seem to remember. It wasn't in your training. Book. It was. Uh, I had a tryout. Right. I because right. uh, when I made the wonderful decision at 14, because that's the place you want to make your f- whole life decisions, <laughs> uh, is when you're 14 and a prepubescent boy. Um, you know, I decided I want to be a wrestler, so uh, we didn't have, uh, the internet did not exist. Cable television didn't even exist. And uh, so I um, would get the, what we used to call the Aptor magazines, Bill Aptor's, right. wrestle, you know, PWI, wrestler, and they would list in there where the offices were in the cities. Mm-hmm. So, like, uh, Jim, Jim Crockett's promotion was in Charlotte. Uh, Vern Gagne's was in Minneapolis. You know, so on and so forth. And I would walk to the local library. Uh, we, we had those back then, kids. And uh, it was a room full of books. It was more than just an internet yeah. access place. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, people used to read paper. Um, which is really trippy if you think about it. You know, it's a bunch of words printed on a dead tree that when you're reading it, you're hallucinating vividly while you're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, uh, and they had phone books. They had phone books of every major city. Yeah. So I would get the phone number for the office in Minnesota. I would get the office in North Carolina. I would get the office in Florida, Texas. And then every month I would call all of them and, you know, hey, I want to get trained and at first, they, a lot of them would just hang up on me, and then after a while, they'd start either put the phone down and leave me sitting, <laughs> or they'd you know entertain themselves and you know talk to me if they were bored and there was nothing going on. And then one day, while I was you know I had just talked to Jim and he had turned me down, and I'd gotten a hold of Gene Anderson in um, Charlotte, and he was like, "Oh yeah, we got a tryout coming up in October. It's two hundred fifty dollars," which in nineteen eighty one was a lot of money mm-hmm. yeah. and uh, I'm like oh okay I'll be there and uh, <laughs> um, and to this day I still don't understand my logic or thinking or reasoning but I sold my car that I had a 1968 Dodge Monaco great car love that car um, good times in the backseat anyways uh, <laughs> just ask your mom um, and uh, you know uh, I could have just drove down there but for some reason, I took the Greyhound bus. Let me tell you something. That is the most cruel and inhuman punishment anyone can be subjected to. Uh, is taking a, a bus ride. I'm a big Greyhound rider. Oh. When you when you get lucky, yeah, you feel like you're in the Shangri La. Oh, but most of the time, most of the you, time yeah, you're not you'd lucky. Rather, you'd be better off walking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. twenty four hour ride from Lima, Ohio, to Charlotte, North Carolina, and uh, we literally stopped at every crack in the road. Um, at one point we stopped out in the middle of the country and these Amish people got on, it smelled like wet sod on the bus <laughs> and then like they rode for like two miles and then got off and walked out in the dark in a field somewhere and I went, <laughs> what the hell just happened? So, um, we got into Charlotte, had to do a five mile walk over to where the uh, old arena was, uh, the old Charlotte Coliseum and then the next day I got up and um, proceeded to get tortured for about five hours. <laughs> uh, we had to run uh, five miles in the back parking lot and then come in and do uh, 400 free squats. Um, we had to run all the steps in the arena where you run up and then down and over and up and down. Oh, yeah. And then we had to do 400 push-ups, and then we had to 
Uh, and if it wasn't your turn to go in the ring, um, you had to put somebody on your back, run down to the end of the arena and back. It wasn't really fair. I had a guy that was like 350, 400 pounds. <laughs> wow. And, um, and then do jumping jacks. So they were just exhausting you, just to, so you'd be easier to handle. Yeah, and then... And then you go through the five trainees. If you make it through them, Ole typically would be the guy that would what we call stretch you. He'd hook you and make you scream and then kick you out of the ring. And um, I had, because nobody else was around, Gene was, uh, and they gave me a release, and they had the blank hold harmless, so I wrote Gene Anderson in there. (laughs) (laughs) Big mistake. Um, uh, Gene was not as accomplished a wrestler as Ole, and so he proceeded to bite me all over the back, pull my hair, fish hook my mouth, um, rip my face open, uh, slammed my face against the bottom rope, broke my nose, um, and then tried to grab my testicles. Uh, I, in turn, grabbed his, held on for dear life. We were rolling back and forth in like an alligator death roll on the mat um, until he finally rolled over and put his thumb in my eye and was like going to pop my eye out. And Then Oli became the voice of reason. I was like, calm down. <laughs> I think we're getting a little carried away here. And then kicked me in the ass as I stood up, bleeding from my face, and I went to the back and got cleaned up and shook their hand. And and then I came and watched, I spent that night watching the show that night, watching Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood and Sergeant Slaughter and Don Carnodal and uh, Valentine and uh, Piper in a chain match and John Studd and Jake Roberts, all those guys. And then, uh, then like a year and a half later, I'd be sitting in the dressing room right across from the two of them just going, hmm, <laughs> didn't say anything. I wasn't like, hey, remember me? <laughs> you owe me 250 bucks. So I just kind of sat there. That was your first day kind of on the job, yeah. so quote unquote, as a wrestler. Yeah. What is the first day in 2023 at Ohio Valley Wrestling like for an inspired wrestler? Oh, it's nothing like that, no. I wanted to ask so that we could see in your time in the business how much things have changed. Well, they have changed and they haven't changed. Um, they have changed because around WrestleMania three was the era where it did start to become different. And that was what motivated me to end up buying OVW was because at the time um, I was getting frustrated uh, because uh, and a lot of people uh, get upset when I say these things, but I'm just being honest. I mean, it's just a fact. Um, On the independent wrestling scene, um, anybody can train anybody at any time with any amount of experience, and there are no standards. There are no standards as far as, you know, uh, I'm, I would sit in a locker room, and at the time I was maybe 55, 56, 57 years old. I don't know what year that was, but whatever age I was. Um, and I was in the best shape of anybody in the locker room. Mm-hmm. That's wrong. That's <laughs> that's not good. And I, from an aesthetic and cosmetic, because the entertainment business is an aesthetic, cosmetic business, period. If, right. you, don't, if you don't like it, don't get in it. Mm-hmm. Nobody drove to your house, put a gun to your head, and said, hey, you, you need to be in the entertainment industry just is what it is so you have to accept it um and part and parcel of and you don't have to look like a bodybuilder but you have to look when you walk through a curtain like you make your living in a competitive combat situation Mm -hmm. because that's what an audience wants to believe and visually they need to be able to believe that period um and if you don't that makes it very difficult to sell that illusion for an audience to get what they paid their money to see absolutely not only that 
you actually really legitimately have to have a certain amount of athletic conditioning to perform as a professional. And a professional, first part of professional is profession, meaning it's your job. So you treat it as such. So you, you know, everything that's done, and I tell all the students this, is that everything is done as an investment of time, money, and effort on the promoter's part in you, and then especially on the audience's part. Mm-hmm. So you guys, when you come to a show, you're investing your time, money, and effort, and you're wanting to get what you bought, what you paid to see. Absolutely, yeah. And a lot of times you don't. And that's with any, any it doesn't have to be just wrestling. It's it, what you expect out of any entertainment. You go to a restaurant, you get one bad experience, you're never going back. Right, yeah. And the, and the same goes, you know, and not just from a, but more importantly, from a self-respect and a respect for your opponent, you should be in a certain amount of athletic, physical condition to where you're safe you're not increasing exponentially the odds of suffering a life-altering or life-ending injury once you get in that ring and that unfortunately that exists all the time Mm -hmm. so i was looking at people that were in no way in any kind of physical condition to do what it is they were saying they were doing not just from a, a looks department but from a really being responsible and being respectful for yourself and your opponent way so I started contacting because, and then at, that was that same year, there was a young man out in Oklahoma who had, was in the ring and been poorly trained, uh, and he died. He got, he had, uh, somebody did a sidewalk slam, hit the back of his head, had brain swelling, and was in a coma for, God, I don't know how long, and they finally, they pulled the plug. Oh my gosh. And that, that's been happening at a greater and greater rate because there's more and more people that are being poorly uh, trained, um, not being trained properly. And so... Um, I'm glad you went back to that word safety because as just a fan, it really does kind of blow my mind that there is not more oversight or at least more responsibility on people's part, people wanting to take responsibility for being able to take care of their opponent or just, take, you know. Yeah, you would think. But And what really sealed the deal for me was my wife, who is a licensed uh, massage therapist, um, we were talking, and I realized, like, if you want to do any other licensed profession, because that's what professional wrestling is, it's a licensed profession, uh, in any state in the union, you've, if you want to be even a, a hairdresser or, hell, even if you want to be a mortician, and let's face it, what could go wrong there? They're dead already. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, oops, well, hey. <laughs> yeah, just, just get the sewing move, needle out. Move it'll be the, fine. Yeah, move the tie over there. Um you know, they'll never notice it in the casket. Uh, so what? But they, you have to go to a state-accredited school. You have to be taught by a state-accredited teacher. Mm-hmm. You have to complete a certain number of required hours of education. And then you've got to have a certain amount of residency, which means supervised experience, hands-on experience, before you can even take a test. Right. As a professional wrestler in any state that has a commission, the best you can do, take a physical other than that, some states, you just pay the money and you're, ta-da, you're a licensed wrestler. And you're trusting these people to throw people around. Or, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, I, uh, I went and spoke to the Maryland Commission. I spoke to the commission in Oklahoma. I spoke to the one in Louisiana, um, South Carolina. Um, they all turned me down because I was proposing standards for training, and they were concerned that it would limit the amount of people they had that were licensed, the money that they would bring in. Right. Quite honestly. And so I made an appeal. I went to the, one of the board meetings 
uh, for the Kentucky Boxing Wrestling Commission. And at that time, the executive director was Chad Miller, who was my initial partner. Mm -hmm. And um, we met. He had a lot of aspirations that were very similar as far as upping and making it better for the athletes in professional wrestling and such. And uh, um, I was hanging out in OVW, and Danny started. Danny Davis, the founder, started kind of kidding. He was like, hey, you ever thought about buying a wrestling company? I was like, hell no. <laughs> and, uh, and then Chad got involved, and one thing led to another. And initially it was myself, Joe Reeves, and Chad Miller um, who bought the company from Danny Davis. And then Larry Benz, uh, who is part of Pro Rehab, came in as a partner. And then we were on a process, because it always takes a process to build an audience of, uh, and we were starting to gain ground and then COVID hit. Mm -hmm. And then that was what let the door open to, for Matt Jones and Craig Greenberg and Jeff Tovlin to come in as partners as well. And then, um, and then we, the Netflix thing came on and uh, uh, Genvec, um, which is a group of uh, um, venture capitalists, had seen the show and we were, you know, financially still struggling mm -hmm. um, prior to the uh, Netflix show. And they came in and gave it, you know, have put a real infusion of capital and um, have given the um, arena a facelift and have given a lot up the production level with a lot of great equipment and also bring a lot of resources as far as other companies that can allow us to scale up mm -hmm. um, the OVW as a whole. Because the aspiration I've always had is that I've always wanted it to be not a competitor to anyone because I truly believe much like with Walmart and Target and there everyone has a percentage of the market. Right. So there's no reason why, you know, OVW can exist in its own little realm, um, you know, and, and give an audience a national experience on a regional expense. Because let's face it, I mean, if you want to go to WWE or, you know, AEW, uh, and only when AEW's, you know, if they're not doing buy one, get one freeze and things like that. But let's face it, it's very expensive. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. it's not, not a, you know, thing that you as a, you know, working person with a family and stuff, it's not cheap no. to, you know, to go to a WWE event, you know, you're going to, we want to go to Raw or SmackDown, and you're looking at probably 50, 60 bucks to buy a, just a ticket for yourself. Now right. you're going to bring your wife yeah, anywhere decent, and your kids. At least. Yeah. 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 And then you, you got to pay to park. You're going to pay, you know, so you've probably spent three, four, five hundred dollars for, right. you know, where, you know, you come to an OVW event, you're going to get a, you know, a national experience, but it's going to cost you 50 or 60 bucks for all four of you to go, maybe 70 at the most, you know? And so it's, it's, I wanted to put it in that type of situation, create a, a circumstance where if you're a new talent, there is a place that you can get actual real experience. You can get actual standardized training. We're the only training center in the world that is certified by the state office of proprietary education as a trade school for professional wrestling. That's right, Nobody yeah. else is. Um, you know, and that required having to, I mean, literally a binder of, was about this thick. It took probably two hours at, at uh, Office Max to copy it all, to send it in. It's ridiculous. Um, you know, that took a lot of time and a lot of effort, but it it was the right was thing what, to do. I think so because it it, yeah. it now we have certain standards, and we have to we have to adhere to those standards as far as proper training and 
things like that. Um, because I still very much look at everyone that comes through those doors are now carrying my reputation and my name. And at the end of the day, I can always make more money. I mean, that's, I don't give two shits about money, but I'm not going to have another 41 years to make another name. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to let people come in and ruin that reputation or that name walking out of the door and not being properly trained. If they are not properly trained, it's because they didn't put the time or the effort into it. And not because I didn't put the time or effort or ensure that the people that work for me didn't put the time and effort into them to make sure they knew what they had to do. So you're, you're kind of a, a teacher and you're working with a lot of younger talent or talent that's newer in the industry. And then Netflix shows up and they're following you guys 24 hours a day. Yeah, <laughs> quite by, literally. By my count, it's like you and Ryan Howe are probably the only people who've had any experience being followed by a documentary film crew to that extent. Maybe I, you know, I'm not really sure. I mean, there might be some people that are, you know, on Unsolved Mysteries right, or something yeah, like maybe. that. But were you, and you mentioned this thing of like your name and your reputation, were you ever scared of, especially with people that are not used to being on camera, not used to being followed all the time, people that aren't as... Um, eloquent on camera were you ever <laughs> were you ever were you ever scared of of your reputation through the netflix show not anything that happened in the ring or the way that you trained people right but through the netflix show were you afraid of your reputation being um, messed with changed the perception no, no because i like for me like i told told them because at first when they first came in they were like well maybe you could do it. and i go nope i ain't doing anything i'm gonna be the same what you get is what you see i'm gonna be the same person before you got here and it's the same person that's when you're here as the same person when you leave because when you're gone, I'm still going to be here. Mm -hmm. I yeah. still have the same responsibilities to both OVW and the wrestling business as a whole. I've still got to go live in the wrestling business, and I'm not going to do or be anything different. And, um, you know, I had no problem with that. I knew that there, there were going to be people that were, and when I watched it back, and I'm like, oh, Lord, what were they thinking? On camera, really? I mean, how stupid are you? Mm -hmm. You know, um, we're, and, and this is a testament to Greg Whiteley and his crew, and that they did things so well. Like, I expected that we would have negativity as far as social media because, you know, nobody gets punched in the face on social media. Right. So right. they're free to say whatever they want to say. Um, I thought for sure we were going to, a lot of haters and a lot of negativity. Really, the only negativity we had was several people were like, "Oh, this is so contrived; it's not real." And I'm, I'm sitting there reading it, going, "If you only knew! I wish it was contrived and not real." As I'm watching Haley driving down 64 at 75, 80 miles an hour, rolling a joint, smoking it, and texting all at the same time, <laughs> and to doing and, an interview, <laughs> yeah, and doing an interview, and I'm like, oh, "For God's sakes!" But no, I didn't think that their actions or behavior, because I can only be held so accountable and so responsible for what the talent do, mm -hmm. you know. It's not that I don't maintain a certain standard of behavior and then enforce it. Right. It's that I can't be everywhere doing everything all the time to enforce it. Were you ever scared that, because I know that I was as a fan, and I've been going to Ohio Valley Wrestling shows for a long time and like love what you guys do and have always had a blast. And anytime somebody comes in from the outside, there can always be that fear that, oh, they're just going to say, ha-ha, wrestling, and they were just going to use this thing to kind of 
maybe make light of your guys's lifestyle or mm-hmm. your guys's professional choices were you, were you ever scared of that because i know as a fan i was uh, well you know i watched uh greg's other shows mm-hmm. and i i had to just make it to a choice, make a decision, and that was either we were either all going to be 100% open and honest with who we are and all that, or we weren't going to do it. Can't be half pregnant, and that's what <laughs> most people these days want to do, is they want to be half pregnant. Mm-hmm. You can't do it. You got to either commit or you don't. You know, they you want the all, bump, they don't want the baby. That's it. That's it. You know, and you know, and then to everyone's credit, staff, employees, talent, everyone was completely open. You know, the wrestlers were sometimes, you could tell, like, they'd turn it on whenever the cameras came around. Yeah. Like, that ain't really who you are. <laughs> just pump the brakes. I mean, you know? we've seen it a couple times just on the microphone. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the the yeah. tour goes a little different than when the microphone comes on. Oh, yeah, on. I, yeah. But I, I feel like in your position, you can't really be mad at your guys for seeing the camera and oh, immediately no, no. saying, here's my chance. No, <laughs> no. And there were others that were on the show that weren't themselves either. So mm-hmm. they were putting on a manufactured image right. as well. They, look, you know... Um, and that I get it. I understand, you know, that why they do it and stuff. But the problem is the audience can see through it too. Yeah, that's you know you have to be like stand-up comedy and professional wrestling share a lot of things in common. And one of the ones especially is is that you have to be completely honest with yourself, and you have to be you because an audience will see right through it. And if they cannot believe in who you are, they will never believe in what you say or what you do. Period. Simple as that. How early was it that you figured out that? that sentiment in the wrestling business. unfortunately it took me years but <laughs> you know but i've i have figured it out and i know that's why it works yeah the the people that you idolize and that are stars in either art form whether it's stand-up comedy or whatever is because of the fact that they are who they are steve austin really is steve austin mm-hmm. just with the volume turned way up when he goes out to the ring vince mcmahon is really vince mcmahon just uh, stephanie shane undertaker you know, Hunter, um, John Cena. I mean, they're all who they are. They just turn the volume up, way up high when they walk out. And that's why you can, that's why they, you enjoy them and why they're entertained because you can believe in who they are. So now you can believe in anything they do. Who was your favorite wrestler growing up? Uh, God, people that you probably wouldn't even know. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's a completely different generation back in the day. So, you know. Yeah, I'm just curious. Uh, guys like, you know, I really liked Buzz Sawyer at one time, Austin Idol. You know, I was, uh, uh, and I still to this day, because the more I've been in this business, the more I really appreciate the genius of Jerry Lawler. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, big, big Jerry Lawler fan. You know, Bow and Kern and Stan Lane were the fabulous ones. They were, they were awesome. They were very entertaining to watch, and you know, were awesome. And you know, uh, just you know. I was a big Bill Eady fan, Masked Superstar, uh, Axe of uh, Demolition, um, when he was the Masked Superstar. Jo- uh, Mr. Wrestling 2, um, Johnny Walker, was a big fan of his. Um, Bobby Heenan, uh, you know, uh, always impressed by Tony Atlas, you know, just because of his build and his look and things like that, so... There's uh, something in your book that you always kind of come back to where you tell stories at different parts of your life. Yeah. And you you explain how you wish they had gone, but yeah. you're, you never have any sour grapes that they didn't go that way. 
No. Is that something you try to teach your students at OVW? No, I think that's something you just have to learn on your own. <laughs> <laughs> I can give, look, I, I always say this, and, and it's, it's a, it's, I've kind of twisted it. It's not the same as the original saying, but um, I always tell people, um, I can give you advice. If you're smart enough, I probably don't need to tell you, and if you're dumb enough, you're probably not going to listen. So, you know, it's just advice. Is you know? there one thing that you wish that people would listen to if you could just get them to listen to one thing? Is there as far as the wrestling business mm-hmm. is concerned? Yeah. Uh, two things, I guess. Maybe three. One is, is that you can do absolutely, and this doesn't apply to wrestling, it applies to everything. You can do anything you want. That's the God's honest truth. You can do anything you want. If you want it bad enough, you'll find a way. If you don't, you'll find an excuse. Mm-hmm. No ifs, ands, or buts. And uh, if you want to live a life that others don't live, be willing to do things that others don't do. Invest time, money, and effort in yourself because you're asking, no matter what venture you're undertaking, you're asking someone else to invest their time, money, and effort in you. Make it worthwhile. You're only going to get out of it what you put into it, Mm -hmm. period. You know, but everyone wants to sit and bitch and complain and cry about, well, I ain't getting this, I ain't getting that. That's because you ain't doing anything. If you wanted it, you could go do it. And I know there are going to be people listening going, you just don't understand. Tell me I don't understand. Tell me you have went through something that yeah. I haven't gone through. Tell me how I don't understand when I, would, when I first started wrestling, I was pushing my car into town sometimes because I didn't have any gas. I literally, I still, you know, um, my wife cracks, cracks up because, like, if I walk into a pilot or a, or a flying J, I get excited. You know, or like, like, you know, you take me into a sheets or a Wawa, like I'm, I get half a chub. I get full mast and Bucky's. I mean, Bucky's is really impressive. Fully erect. I'll like walk around with a major heart on. And you know why? Because back when I first started wrestling, it's the truth. I mean, I'm a, I literally, the first time I walked into Bucky's, it's like two in the morning. I'm videoing it going, look, and I'm <laughs> calling my wife on FaceTime going, look at this place. Do you need any oh, deviled my, quail legs? Oh my God. It's like. It's like Cracker Barrel and Bass Pro Shop and Walmart all threw up at the same time. <laughs> but it was, I was on the road when I was 18. And, you know, the way that the business works, the entertainment business works, is you only get paid based off how many people showed up to see you. Well, when I was first breaking into the business, I was plus one other match or other exciting bouts or additional all-stars. My name wasn't on the poster. So I was always last in line as far as who got paid what on the shows. And there were nights I got paid three or four bucks. And I remember gas stations didn't have microwaves and they had those Stewart sandwiches that were like 50 cents. So sometimes if in order to eat, I would get a cold Stewart sandwich and I'm like, God, or I'd get Vienna sausages. If you've never ate Vienna sausages, Ugh, like it's a little tin can Had them a couple of times. fingers sticking up out of them uh, or spam. Mm, delicious. We yeah, we were talking about spam. Yeah. yeah. But if you eat it cold, ugh. so I got a Boy Scout mess kit. It was like two steel pie plates. They had a band on it with a wing nut. And I took some um, muffler tape and I would tape it to the uh, manifold of my car and I'd drive down the road and I'd heat my food up and I'd eat it. <laughs> so, you know, and I'd sleep in roadside rests or, you know, on the off-ramp of highways and stuff in the car because I couldn't afford a hotel. And in the middle of winter, 
you know, didn't have any money. So I know, I get it. Mm-hmm. It ain't easy. But, you know, I never regretted any of that. I mean, it's, it, you know, and, and back then, some of those times were some of the f- funnest and most awesome times I've had in the business. At, at that time, you know, you mentioned it was some of the most fun and awesome times you had in the business. Was there ever a night that you remember where you were just like, I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore? I can't oh, do this sure, anymore. yeah. I mean, there, there were a couple times, you know, had those conversations with God. <laughs> and you're like, one stick out in particular? Yeah, uh, no, I mean, no, no one particular one, but it was like, but there was a certain point because, you know, the business was changing. You know, by the, when I got in in 82, the war started in 84 where Vince was going national. And, you know, um, Vince basically stole all of the what we call workers mm-hmm. in wrestling. Yeah. And all that were left in the uh, regional or territorial places were wrestlers. Wrestlers don't draw money. Workers do. And there's a vast difference between the two. Can you, just for a second, define those two differences? Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, a work um, is, is a sham. It's a con. It is my ability to make you believe a lie. Mm-hmm. There's only one lie about wrestling. Everybody goes, oh, that's fake. No, it's not. It's not fake. Everything is quite physically real. The only thing that is a lie that you're wanting to believe is that we don't know who's winning before we go out there. Right. And we do. Big difference between fake and predetermined. It's predetermined, but now we have to work you, make you believe in our intent, Mm -hmm. and then the consequence of our actions. This goes back to what you were talking about earlier about just guys looking like they were athletes right. or moving like they're athletes. Mo- looking, moving like they're an athlete and being able to convince you, allow you the ability to believe in the intrinsic lie that it's not a real competitive situation. Right. And, and contrary to popular belief, you know, especially here in the United States, Everyone has known that since 1940. It's it, or more. It's I think the first book, uh, Fall Guys, came mm-hmm. out in 1919. It did. Yeah. yeah, and that was that was kind of that was when the Gold Dust yeah. Trio were running the, right. the, the 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 national scene of wrestling, and and then of course one got hurt feelings and left and started throwing dirt on the business, and then the second big event was in 1938 or 39. Um, uh, reporter, news reporter, r- reported the uh, results for the Madison Square Garden show uh, the night before they happened because he was drunk. Okay. Oh, and that's why the newspapers don't stopped carrying the results of wrestling shows as regular sporting events because he called them in before they actually took place. So everyone, I, in 19, I tell, you know, the students and stuff and the talent, 1976, I proclaimed to my own family, I love dearly all of them. None of them are Mensa candidates. Um, <laughs> <laughs> wonderful people, though. Uh, you know, you'd drive by the park, we'd have our family reunion, and we were that family where you were like, what the hell? <laughs> um, I proclaimed to the, in every one of them said, why do you want to do that? That's fake. Every one of them. My gr- both grandmothers on both sides, grandfathers, aunts, uncles, everyone. Why do you want to do that? That's fake. None of them had ever done it. Mm-hmm. All of them were blue-collar workers. How did they know? Because everyone's known and always known. Why did so thousands upon thousands of people have continued over decades to pay to see wrestling? 
and it's still a major staple on television as yeah. a content. And why? In terms of marketing dollars and, and everything and, else. And yeah. drawing an audience. Why? If everyone knew that wrestling was not, the one thing was not actually a competitive situation. Why? Well, because the wrestlers, the workers, were capable of allowing an audience to believe in the line mm -hmm. and be entertained. That's just, you know, we, don't, we know magic's not real, that they're intrinsically, the lie about magic is that they are altering uh, the laws of gravity or defying mm -hmm. physics, and they're not. But you, they can do it so well, Chris Angel can do it so well that he had a permanent room at the Luxor in Las Vegas and had a television show. Right, yeah. You know that, and, and you don't invest that kind of money into a form of entertainment if you don't think it's gonna draw an audience. Well, neither, I, I said it on one of the super early episodes of this podcast, like is wrestling, are people's perceptions of it necessarily wrong? No. But you know what is actually fake fucking Iron Man? You know, uh, like, you know movies. what is actually fake, like, uh, 199% of the stuff that you watch, at least when I'm sure. watching this thing, these guys have Everything put in the work. Everything that's on TV yeah. is not real. Right. Even Everything. reality shows aren't really no, real. No, they're shows. not real at all, and neither is the news or anything else. But wrestling is not fake. <laughs> wrestling is not fake. Wrestling is not a competitive situation. But, you know, and the only thing that's fake about wrestling is just the outcome. Right. Guess what's the only thing that's fake about some boxing matches? The outcome. Guess what's only fake about a lot of different sporting events? The outcome. Correct. Because it's a business. Once you take any sport and you now monetize it and are required to sell tickets and merchandising and television rights, etc., is no longer a sport. It is now a business period. I think that, you know, this is one of the things that makes pro wrestling like so great and so American is they just kind of leaned in to that part of it. Sure. Every other sport, boxing, especially mm -hmm. boxing. I just want to let everybody know is still as fixed as anything else is. UFC is pretty much the same thing. They know that these guys have different skill levels. They put different guys' skill levels referees in. Can, there referees can, yeah. can work. There's things. a lot going on because, like Al said, it is a business. The difference between wrestling and what whatever you watch is that wrestling leaned in to the... Well, we just accepted it, yeah. and, and, and the audience accepted it as well. The, the, but understand, okay, there's always been a long-standing agreement between the wrestlers and the audience, and that's called kayfabe. Okay, kayfabe was a code word, an indiscriminate word that you would use, that you would allow somebody in that one of your compatriots to know that there was somebody around you that you didn't want to smarten up. And it has some sort of to, like a pig Latin root kind of, right? No, it's just a, it's, it was a way where you could say, you know, uh, hey, you remember the girl uh, last night? What was her name? Kayfabe? You know, or, oh, that car is really kayfabe, or, you know. Okay. It was, it was an, uh, Way to drop code into the conversation without letting everybody yeah, else know. Yeah, being subtle in letting, and it was a word that stood out. And in what it was, was we all made an agreement, okay? We know, you know, that we know, you know, that it ain't an actual competitive situation. But you know what we're going to do? We're never going to insult you. We're never going to take that away from you. And in fact, what we're going to do is we're going to go to great lengths to always allow you the easiest process to believe. Mm -hmm. it, you know, um, an actor like a Tom Cruise, you know, he has the very same thing that I have. He has a gimmick. 
they the studios back in the day created that. Yeah. And it literally is the gimmick is a movie star. The reason they created it was to ensure that you would because his job is the same as mine. He has to motivate you to leave your home to drive to another building, to sit around people you don't want to sit around, in seats you don't want to sit in, to watch him do his job. And his value is only dictated by how many people will be willing to do that. Right. Okay? The difference with Tom Cruise is we're selling the gimmick of movie star. Why are we selling the gimmick of movie star? Well, because we want you to still find him fascinating, aspire to beat him, because we can't guarantee that just because you liked him in The Last Samurai, you're now going to show up and see him in Mission Impossible. So we need something to bridge between the movies to keep you interested in him as a product. Me, I sell me. Now I've got to be me all the time because that's the thing you bought. I'm never going to not give you what you paid to see. So like when I was traveling in with Head when it, back in the day when I was really successful with it, you know, I would go into restaurants and by myself set Head on the table or I'd ask for a table for two, and they'd just stare at me. And then I'd set the table, and we'd talk, and I'd argue, and I'd order food for both of us. I'd bitch them out because they didn't pay again. And, and you know, and we got asked to leave a lot of restaurants, and, you know, like, uh, you're going to need to leave where you're making the other customers uncomfortable. And you're like, I'm like, where's the nearing fly, nearest flying J? So <laughs> that's right. I'm like, well, you get, you're making all of us uncomfortable. And then they'd be like, well, sir, we're going to call the cops. I go, oh, okay, well, just box that up. We'll go. You know, and then I'd eat it in the hotel room, so I didn't waste it. So, but the reason I did that was if you and your family came in and watched that night, and then two weeks later, you turn, you were flipping through the channels on Raw, and you saw me come out, you're like, get in here. There's that lunatic that came from the race <laughs> out here on wrestling. That guy's insane. You now believe in me. So now you believe in any of the ridiculous stuff I did on TV. Right? And trust me, I did a lot.